Hello, and welcome to the March 10th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I wonder if any of you had the chance to watch the recent Arena Games Triathlon in Montreal that featured Lionel Sanders. I would not generally be inclined to watch an event like that, but because of Lionel's participation, I decided to take a look-see, and I found myself thoroughly impressed on many, many levels. First of all, though I kind of knew peripherally of the Arena Games, I confess to not being terribly familiar with exactly what the deal was with them. I didn't really know anything about who was participating, what the format was, or actually who was even putting them on. I vaguely knew about Super League Triathlon and the high-paced events that feature the short course stars that run through much of the summer, but I was completely in the dark otherwise, and count myself among the many who likely only found out about this and tuned in because of Sanders' involvement. Arena League is another venture of the Super League and features many of the same athletes. The format here is that athletes swim short sets in an Olympic distance pool, quickly transition to a bike connected to Zwift, and then run on a self-powered treadmill that's also in a Zwift world. Each leg is really short, and the racing is all very, very fast. It's extremely spectator-friendly, since everything is done around the pool, and giant screens display the cycling and running Zwift worlds. Where it gets interesting is that the athletes go through the event three times. First, they do a traditional swim-bike run. Then they pause briefly to reset their equipment before going run-bike-swim. And then finally, after another pause, they do a pursuit in which the leader after the first two legs starts first in the pool and followers start their swim the amount of time they were behind after the second leg and try to catch the leader. It's a really fun and exciting format, though I'm guessing if Lionel had not been there, I might have personally been less interested since I didn't honestly know any of the other participants. Now, speaking of Lionel, the guy is an absolute beast. Given his well-known weakness on the swim and long course, you can imagine how he fared against these superstar short course guys in the water. They absolutely ate him up. It was, I think, yeah, it was an 800-meter swim, and they were putting like a full 25 to 50 meters on him by the time it was done. Now, he got out of the water, and by the time he was on the bike, he was putting out easily 100 watts more than the next competitor, and something like 2 watts per kilo more than the next competitor, and so he absolutely destroyed pretty much all of them, taking back huge amounts of time. The problem was the bike was really short, only 4 kilometers. He then held his own on the short run, but couldn't really make up a huge amount of time. But in the course of the back-to-backs, where they started swim-bike-run and then went run-bike-swim, Lionel actually went from last out of the water on the first one and ended up in second by the time they were done because he was able to really leverage his just incredible power on the bike on those two times. But in the end, the swim is just far too important in these short events, and Lionel really didn't have a chance. But he he definitely made a great show, and all of the athletes were impressed and had a lot of great things to say about the long course Canadian. What was really interesting for me, though, was that this highlighted exactly what I've been saying about the PTO. 
I have lamented the fact that the PTO has come into the long course multi-sport space. And rather than trying to either improve what Ironman does or do something radically different and exciting, they've kind of nibbled at the edges and produced events that I, I personally just don't find interesting or worthwhile watching. Why not really shake things up and come up with an event that is still obviously multi-sport, but very different, like what we see with Super League? I've given examples before, and I'm not going to rehash them here, but I just can't get over what a missed opportunity it all seems to be, and how long a window the PTO will have is far from clear to me, because the amount of money they're throwing around is going to dry up at some point if they can't attract a, a TV audience. Another thing that I got from watching the Montreal event, and this is something that both the PTO and Ironman could learn from, is how much better a job of broadcasting the Super League does. Their play-by-play -play person was sharp and informed. He did not spend his time describing every single thing that we were looking at, but instead let the pictures tell the story, and instead added to the broadcast by infusing details of what we couldn't see. For example, anecdotes related to the athletes, comments of where other athletes off-screen were related to the person we were watching, etc. In addition, Tim Don's color commentary was insightful, enthusiastic, and in no way cloying or patronizing. He didn't try to explain basic premises of triathlon, but instead gave some helpful background information that added to the broadcast throughout. I thought that it was a much more professional and significantly superior telecast than anything I have seen from either of the long course organizations. I can only hope that they will notice and take notes. On the show today, I'm excited to be able to answer a question sent in by a listener and former very important contributor to this podcast. I'm certain that you will all remember the name of Maddie Pesh. Maddie is a former pro triathlete who is now a medical student at the University of Minnesota. Maddie worked with me for a couple of years as this podcast's first intern and has stayed in touch since she headed off to pursue her medical degree. Like everyone else in the Northern Hemisphere, she's been feeling the weight of this never-ending winter, and she wrote to me to suggest a segment on seasonal affective disorder and whether or not exercise can help to improve it. After everything we have been through together, it is certainly my pleasure to answer this question, Maddie, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I have a conversation with professional triathlete Ben Hoffman. I had a chance to meet Ben and his wife last October when we were all staying on the same block in Kona, Hawaii, heading into the Ironman World Championships. I asked Ben at that time if he would be interested in joining me on the program, and was really excited when he agreed. It took some time for our schedules to line up, but we eventually found time to chat, and I am excited to bring you that conversation today. Ben has had an amazing career, capped last fall with his win at the Patagonia Man Extreme Triathlon, and he talks about it all as well as some new exciting challenges that he has coming up this year, and that's all coming up a little bit later. Before all of that, I want to take a moment to thank once again all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast, who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, a price I might add that has not increased despite inflation, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. The most recent bonus episode features a full-length interview with professional triathlete Maddie Weitz. You may remember that I discussed a YouTube video by Weitz a few months ago in which he made some really interesting arguments about whether or not Ironman and the WTC was in real trouble. 
Well, in this bonus episode, we talked about that as well as his journey from top age grouper to new professional, and it's available now, along with many other such bonus episodes only available for my Patreon subscribers. In addition, for North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool Boko Tridoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering. It has been really a great experience to get lots of questions submitted for me and the interns to answer on the podcast. This is both because it saves us from having to dig around and find things that we hope are of interest to you all, but also because then we know that we are spending our time wisely, bringing useful information on topics that you all want to learn about. Because chances are, if one listener asks about something, several others had thought about the same thing, but just didn't ask. On this episode, we have a question to answer from a particularly special listener. Good friend of the podcast and the OG intern, Maddie Pesh, now a medical student at the University of Minnesota, reached out to me to ask about seasonal affective disorder. In Minnesota, of course, winter is long and cold and dark, and February and March can be difficult for those who are prone to mood disorders that are related to the shorter days. Maddie wanted to know how prevalent seasonal affective disorder is, what role exercise can have in both preventing it and treating it, and what other treatment modalities exist for this scourge of winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Well, as I have mentioned not too infrequently of late on the podcast, the February doldrums seem to be everywhere these days, and this winter has been particularly harsh. For some, though, it's more than just a subjective feeling of being cooped up for too many months or being tired of the cold. For some, the seasons can have a profound effect on mood and emotional state, and for these people, seasonal affective disorder is a very serious issue. Seasonal affective disorder is a condition that causes regularly occurring depressive episodes in the wintertime, with remissions in spring and summer. It's a relatively common condition, affecting somewhere between 1-3% to of the population, and some papers have said as many as 1 in 10. It's more common in women than in men, and seems to get better with age. The mechanisms of how it comes about are unknown, but there are certain neurotransmitters and pathways that are implicated, such as those involving dopamine and serotonin. The symptoms of seasonal affective disorder include low low mood, loss of interest, difficulties with concentration, loss of energy and fatigue, as well as increased sleep, appetite, and weight gain that is generally attributed to an intense craving for carbohydrates. Patients with seasonal affective disorder begin to develop symptoms in the fall and tend to have improvement during the spring or summer. Some patients retain their regular winter depressions for long periods of time as much as throughout their lives, while others will remit or even go on to develop other types of depression. Epidemiological studies of populations have found that the rates of seasonal affective disorders don't really change with advancing latitude. That is to say that the further north you go and the shorter that the days become during winter, does not seem to be associated with higher rates of seasonal affective disorder as you might assume they would be. 
Some researchers have gone on to propose a genetic role for this, hypothesizing that over time, populations who live further north and potentially further south have adapted to their geography and resulted in lower-than-expected rates of seasonal affective disorder as a result. And there is some experimental data to support the role of our DNA in the development of seasonal affective disorder. Studies have shown an increased rate of seasonal affective disorder in first-degree relatives of seasonal affective disorder patients. Twin studies indicate that the heritability for the tendency to experience seasonal changes in mood and behavior is in the range of 29 to 69%, and this is a strong indicator of a genetic link to the disorder. Still, no specific gene has been identified that can 100% explain seasonal affective disorder. Candidate gene analyses have primarily focused on those involved with the serotonin syndrome. There is also some preliminary supporting evidence for genetic coding for hormonal dysregulation, reduced retinal sensitivity to light, psychological mechanisms, and even personality factors, all of which can predispose to the seasonal affective disorder as well. All of this is to say exactly why people get this issue and others don't is still very much unclear. What is clear, though, is the role that light, or more specifically the lack of light in the morning, has in the development of seasonal affective disorder. And this is why, in the absence of much evidence suggesting benefit of medications to treat seasonal affective disorder, a different, brighter, if you will, kind of treatment has proven successful. Light therapy, using bright panels of LED lights of specific wavelengths, has proven remarkably effective at treating seasonal affective disorder. If you remember back to when I covered circadian rhythm and jet lag on this program, you will remember that one of the treatments for shifting your body's clock to a new time zone was to use a similar strategy. Exposing yourself to bright light for 30 to 120 minutes in the morning after waking can trick your brain into resetting its internal clock. Doing so can help you adjust to a new time zone, and it turns out can also help in overcoming seasonal affective disorder. Many high-quality studies have repeatedly shown that light therapy is safe and effective, though its effects wear off within a few days of discontinuing the light therapy, so it has to be continued essentially throughout the winter. When comparing light therapy to behavioral therapy and to medications, studies have shown that light, th light therapy is far superior, leading to faster remission of early insomnia, psychic anxiety, hypersomnia, and social withdrawal. Researchers have suggested that, like with jet lag, light therapy may correct the pathological circadian phase shift that is associated with the development of seasonal affective disorder. Well, what about exercise? There are reams of paper dedicated to all of the research that has shown the benefits of exercise on mental health, so there must be something out there that suggests that being physically active can help with seasonal affective disorder, right? Well, yes and no. First of all, we could find no evidence that exercise or regular physical activity prevents seasonal affective disorder. Furthermore, there isn't any great evidence that exercise or physical activity alone is effective treatment for seasonal affective disorder. However, we did come across some interesting studies on exercise in conjunction with light therapy. 
A 2004 study from Finland compared the effects of light therapy to exercise to a combination of light therapy and exercise in treating depressive disorders, including seasonal affective disorder. Now, the major issue with this study was that it recruited subject volunteers and that very few actually had a depressive disorder. Still, within the hundred or so subjects, there were enough who had some mood or behavioral disturbances associated with the seasons that some conclusions could be made. Essentially, in this study, light therapy was found to be superior to exercise, but the combination of light therapy and exercise was by far the most efficient. Here, exercise was performed indoors, with participants exposed to the special lights as they worked out. Another study in Alaska from 2021 was less experimental in design and instead relied on survey data. This study didn't use light therapy but did, access, but did assess the importance of exercise in mitigating the effects of seasonal affective disorder. Like in the Finnish study, exercise again was found to be helpful, but an interesting additional hypothesis came out in this paper. Here, the authors supposed that time spent in the gym with others had a positive effect on participants by virtue of the positive social relationships that this engendered. The authors then wondered if it was less so about the exercise and more about the social interactions that led to improvements in seasonal affective disorder. Unfortunately, that's about all there is to report on this subject. Despite the large number of people who suffer from seasonal affective disorder and the well-known benefits of exercise on mental health, there just doesn't seem to have been the kinds of interest in investigating this question. I'm guessing that the rationale for this is twofold. First, light therapy is itself remarkably effective and accessible. And when you already have something that works that well, the drive to explore other alternative measures kind of becomes less important. Second, and I think this is even kind of more important, we all know that a big problem with the winter blues is that they make us kind of not feel like exercising. I mean, that, that's kind of the issue for a lot of us who might not even have seasonal affective disorder and still don't feel like exercising. So how much do you think someone who is really struggling with true seasonal affective disorder and is really feeling horribly unmotivated is going to want to be told, hey, cheer up, I have just a solution for you. Go do some exercise. Like you, I'm guessing this might not be received so well. And for a treatment to be successful, there has to be compliance. And when you tell a really unmotivated person to do something that requires motivation, well, that just doesn't seem like a great plan. So at the end of the day, I'm really only left with one question. And that is, does exercise help prevent seasonal affective disorder? To me, that's a pretty key question that no one has answered. And I think it'd be important to do so. If you, for example, looked at two groups and randomized one to do structured physical activity and the other to do activity as they wanted, and then followed them to see what the rates of seasonal affective disorder in each over time, I think that'd be a really interesting study and would answer an important question. Until that study is done, my guess is that regular training is likely a good idea, and that when you are inevitably hit with those winter blues, doing whatever you can to stick with your program can only help, but... And I confess this, I'm kind of just guessing at that. For now, if you are one of the many who suffers from seasonal affective disorder, you should know that you are not alone and that there is very effective therapy. Fortunately, 
We are coming into the spring right now, and hopefully your symptoms will improve dramatically on their own. But if not, consider speaking to your doctor about light therapy. And most importantly, if you or anyone you know is feeling depressed or thinking about self-harm, please, please do not suffer in silence. If you're in the United States, just dial 988. In Canada, call 833-456-4566. I can't possibly list numbers for all countries, but please know that wherever you are, if you need it, help is available. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me, either through the private Facebook group that you can find by searching for TriDoc Podcast on that platform, or by sending me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. I'll take a look and I'll consider it for future inclusion. My guest on the podcast today is professional triathlete Ben Hoffman. Ben has been among the pro ranks since 2007, and in that time has put together an impressive career resume. He has eight wins at the Ironman distance, seven at the 70.3, and three top five placings at the Ironman World Championships in Kona, including second in 2014. Most recently, Ben took on the challenge of the extreme triathlon known as Patagonia Man in Chile, where he won an event that, shall we say, very much lived up to its namesake, something that I'm sure we'll discuss during the segment shortly. For now, let me say welcome, and thank you to Ben for taking time to join me on the podcast today. He is uh, joining me from his home in Tucson, I believe, Arizona. That is correct. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and chat with you, and yeah, um, it's a uh, Finally, finally putting this together after we connected in Kona, in right? Kind of a funny, funny way, and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's good. I mean, I I had to, I guess, I guess, commit to this so that I could access your property and get on the, <laughs> the lava flow to get into the ocean to do a swim one day. So um, it was, it was, it was, a, a, it, was a, pay, it was, I'm, I'm it was a price I was willing to pay. I was very, <laughs> uh, very happy to do that. We should uh, tell uh, the listeners that story because uh, I enjoyed that fortuitous meeting as well. I was of course in Kona this past year for the Ironman World Championships myself and had decided along with a group of friends that we were going to go all out and found this um, completely ridiculous property that was on this private drive not too far from the pier and one day I was standing out on uh, the lanai of this obscene home and I met Kelsey Ben's wife who was looking for Ben <laughs> because Ben was uh, apparently swimming just in front of our place and uh, yeah I guess you've been there uh, many times because that home had previously been rented you told me by Jan for Dana. That's correct. Yeah, I don't know who owned it before. I think it may have changed hands somewhat recently and I don't know if the same I think somebody new owns it, but whoever owned it before, I think they would let Jan use it and uh so it definitely had good mojo and and hopefully that, you know, um helped you in your race, but yeah, I've been in that neighborhood a few times. It was kind of a little I think it's sort of, sort of like a little bit of a secret. I mean, more people know about it now, but Kona Bay Estates, it's right on the back side of the pier there like you said. Um, close to everything, but also really quiet and private, which is nice. It kind of keeps things low key and manageable during a relatively stressful week. And, uh, yeah, I, I've been going there, I guess, for probably, I don't know, five or six years now. And Chris Lieta was actually the one that, that taught me about that. Um, you know, before he committed to living there, uh, when he went out to race, he would stay in that neighborhood. So he kind of introduced me to it and it became our little zone. And, 
yeah, it's a great little spot. Like you said, some big homes in there, some kind of expensive prices, but that's Kona during Ironman week. So one of our friends who stayed with us is a road cyclist, and he was just riding the whole time. And he discovered that on Strava, there is a segment from the gate to the house that we were staying at. And so he made it his purpose to to get the calm on that segment, which he did by almost killing himself at the driveway. But Andrew Messick's in the top 10. And uh, there were a couple of pro triathletes in the top 10 as well. So if if you go back there in a couple of years, you'll have to uh, try and scoop that segment out from under him so that I can let him know. Now, you've been at this for quite some time. And you've had tremendous success throughout your career. I'm curious, you know, I've spoken with a couple of pros who uh, have been in the sport for about as long as you had. I had a good fortune to speak to Brent McMahon recently, who just won at uh, Wisconsin uh, back in September, which I, I know you're all too familiar with. And But I'm, I asked him the same question. And what do you attribute your ability to stay at the top echelon of a sport that is always being moved forward by, you know, upstarts and newcomers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a genuine passion for the lifestyle and, uh, yeah, just an appreciation for, for everything that it's brought me. And, you know, I think my default setting has always been towards kind of, I don't know, hard work and, and performance oriented, What you know, whatever I was doing, I wanted to be good at it. And, um, yeah, but I, I think I've always been an outdoorsy person, too. I mean, growing up in Colorado, Western Colorado, with some parents who always had us outside, I mean being outdoors, moving my body was always a big part of my life. I was always an athlete. And when I found triathlon, it just really clicked for me where it kind of put a lot of those things together. And yeah, I mean, it's been an incredible almost 20 year run now. I think it'll be, I started training in 2003 for triathlon at the University of Montana in Missoula. So this will be my 20th season coming up or something like that, 21st, whatever that is. And yeah, I think that there's always something. There's always something to improve at. I mean, this is true of anything in life, probably anything you pursue. Um, but in particular, triathlon, I think there's always with the three sports, even though they're kind of considered one in the sport of triathlon, there's three, you know, three disciplines plus a variety of other things, nutrition, recovery, uh, all the elements that go into it. There's so many variables that it's pretty easy, I think, to always have something to work on. And even if you have great performances, I mean, that doesn't mean that there isn't something to improve to always be better at. So yeah, that's definitely a big, big motivator. The community in the sport. I mean, I love the people that I've been able to meet traveling. I've been able to travel around the world. It's just kind of ticked a lot of the boxes for me, but definitely the the sort of underlying one is I think that, um, that I have a true passion for the hard work and for, yeah, the discipline that goes into it. It gives me a lot of positive feedback in my life. And yeah, I really can't imagine. I think I'm kind of coming to the place where my career will be forced to change, but it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a difficult reckoning in some ways. I think it'll be a, it'll it'll be a tough thing to, to adapt and adjust to. I think I'm going to be looking for a lot of the same things. Hopefully I can apply a lot of what I've learned to whatever I do next, but it will be a tough change. I think. You know, we see this in a lot of other sports that uh, that transition from being a professional athlete to whatever comes after it can be difficult. Uh, You are uh, top of your game physically. You have this structured life with training and racing. And then all of a sudden you transition and suddenly that's basically who you are changes fundamentally. Have you started to think about how you will make that transition and how you will try to make it easier? 
I definitely have. I mean, I think you're kind of forced to confront it as you age. And, and definitely, I think with the introduction of children into our lives, that definitely changed my, my mindset and outlook in a positive way. I mean, it made it one of the, it actually has made it a lot easier because, I mean, I think we're always looking for places to put our energy. And for me, as time has gone on, I think after doing something that I consider a pretty self-involved sport, it kind of has to be, right? If you want to be high performance in this sport, it requires a lot of yeah, sort of navel-gazing in a way, I think. And it's something that I think I look forward to that I've already enjoyed is that sort of shift in mindset where I'm... And, and I'm not. this is not to say that I don't pay attention to my wife or something, but it's different, right? I mean, you have two kids and you're kind of forced to, to evolve and change the way that you put your energy. And yeah, I think in terms of the, how, I've, how I've sort of been thinking about it, is that I really want to maintain certain core components of my lifestyle now. I mean, the autonomy, I mean, having as much control over my time as I do. Yes, I have a coach who tells me what to do more or less when it comes to training, but I do have a lot of freedom and flexibility in my schedule. And I am kind of my own boss. So I think that's probably something that that I want to keep sort of front and center, as well as, of course, the the active lifestyle. I mean, I love what I do, and I'd want to be doing it anyway. I'd, I'd want to be biking, running, swimming to some degree or whatever other sport or activity that I choose, it's going to be definitely a cornerstone of my life, making sure that I prioritize exercise every day, and then the community component. And these are sort of, I guess, overarching things, I think, for life in general, right? I mean, just for for general sort of happiness, I think you need to have, you need to have a purpose, you need to have exercise and diet, you need to be dialed in. And then you need to have your sort of community, right? The people around you, those are all sort of like the, the main cornerstones. But to answer your question, though, in, in terms of exactly knowing, I have no clue yet. And I mean, people have asked me this a lot, and I have some ideas and some thoughts, but I definitely have no concrete answer to it. And I guess my fallback for this is that I feel like answering it with pure conviction is difficult because you never know what's going to happen in your life, even in the next month or six months. And, and by no means am I quitting yet. I mean, I have a different season plan this year, but... I'm still quite motivated to to train hard and to pursue some personal goals as well as some goals with another athlete that I'll be be helping out. And yeah, I think I'm not quite ready to, to hang it up yet. So, um, and I don't want to do the disservice to what I'm doing now by getting too focused on something else. So it's just sort of some quiet planning in the background. And, you know, I, I really don't, I want to keep my options open too. I don't want to feel some sort of panic scramble to like get into what's next. And I think I've created that space. I think I've done well enough financially in my career to have that space to maybe take some time and really make sure that I process what it is that I want. But I imagine it's going to be difficult. I mean, I'm anticipating some major struggle and probably some, yeah, some serious questioning and just some difficult times all around. But um, quite lucky to have an, a really incredibly supportive spouse. And I think she'll help guide me as well. And yeah. And the main thing is prioritizing the kids, of course, what's best for them. You're in a great position because, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm ushering you, uh, ushering you out the door. I, I'm, I'm actually really fascinated because I've had uh, the great privilege to speak with, gosh, probably over a dozen pros now. And at different stages in their career, some of them young, some of them towards the end of their career. I spoke with Tim O'Donnell recently, Brent McMahon, and now yourself, who are you know been in the sport for quite a long time. And I have also spoken to some pros who'd retired. And one of the things that I think we as age groupers and fans of the sport don't appreciate is how much 
triathlon is your job. Because I'm here as an emergency physician, I'm already thinking about my next phase. I'm, I'm looking at my retirement. My wife and I are both have planned well, and so we are in the fortunate position to be able to think about retirement for ourselves in, in a four to five year window. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking like you are, what's the next phase going to look like? What are we going to do? How are we going to make sure that intellectually we're stimulated, things like that? And one of the things I find myself champing at the bit for is, oh, I'm going to have so much more time to train. <laughs> but but when I, when I talk to pros, uh, it's been a recognition for me that for you guys, that this is your job. And when you retire, you don't necessarily want to continue doing that for fun because it's not necessarily been something while you may have enjoyed it. It's not, you don't look at it the same way we do. And so I'm curious when you think about that period, how many years off in the future it is, do you think triathlon will be a part of it or is it something you'll leave behind and shift your physical focus to something else? I mean, it's a really great question, and I couldn't answer it very definitively or concretely because I just don't know for sure. I could sort of see either scenario. Definitely, I feel like, again, I still have a lot of passion for the sport and the people that are in it, the community that surrounds it. So I don't want to leave all of that behind. And I think remaining connected in some way would be important to me. And I'd also like to give back a little bit. I feel like the sport has given me a lot. And so and I think I've given back too along the way in, in my own way and in, in ways that I don't even know probably. But yeah, I think I want to do a little bit more that way. And so I could see that scenario where I stay a little bit more involved. It's also, I'm sure it's like you. I mean, being an ER doc, like you're kind of retiring at a point when you've accumulated like the most knowledge, you know, so much, you've seen so much, experienced it, and then you walk away. And I don't know how you feel about that, but it's like you have so much to offer and you probably are passionate about. It. I mean, you help people. It's very stimulating, like you said, intellectually and otherwise. And yeah, it's kind of a strange thing, right? To just like hang it up and completely walk away. That said, if I found something, if I was really fired up and excited about something <clears throat> that was totally different, that required me to walk away from it, that possibility exists too. And so I, I'm just keeping my mind open to, to kind of all the possibilities I would say maybe slightly counter to what you had said about some of these other athletes that you've interviewed. I really do. Like I love, like I said, the lifestyle of the sport. And although I won't pursue it with the same vigor, probably I won't be training maybe as, yeah, just as structured as I do now. I do want to keep a, a lot of this going. I mean, again, I probably won't swim as consistently, but I love my master's group and I do love swimming when you're swimming well and you're feeling good in the water. It's like, I do love the sport, even though I didn't come from that background growing up and cycling has always been a passion of mine since I was young running as well. I mean, I love getting out and I think the future might be more trail runs and not caring about pace or any kind of actual workouts, but yeah, I mean, running is an awesome sport. It's like the ultimate sport. So yeah, I think I'll continue to do those things. But yeah, it is different when it's your job. It definitely, yeah. I think it's easy to put it on a pedestal and to think that it maybe is something that you want to do, but it is different when you do it for a living and, and your sort of family relies on you to perform, to put food yeah. on the table. Yeah, I, I, I do think that triathlon does afford us that luxury of being able to move into other venues like cycling, running. I know Heather Jackson has transitioned to ultra running and that that's an opportunity that obviously as a professional triathlete, you can avail yourself of. I, I read that you're interested in gravel cycling. I mean, these are things that clearly you're very well suited to. And, and that brings me to 
something that I, I wanted to ask you about. I was fascinated following your journey through Patagonia, man, because um, the extreme triathlons are growing in popularity. They are all set in the most spectacular environments, often spectacular because of how challenging they are. But uh, Chile, certainly from the photographs that I've seen, you had a, a wonderful day beside the swim and then just beautiful scenery. So, so tell us what got you interested in doing that kind of event and what was it like? Yeah, I mean, I think to go to kind of rewind all the way back, I mean, again, I, I grew up in Colorado. I mean, my childhood was all about being outdoors, camping, skiing, rock climbing. I played a bunch of ball sports in high school, basketball, soccer, golf, actually. Um, but I mean, I was always outdoors. And I think that's something that was always in my and, and when I started triathlon in, at the University of Montana, Missoula, we kind of that was how we basically trained i mean we would go just do silly stuff run up mountains whatever it was and it was kind of in that vein i guess and and then i started doing this sport for a living and i think most of the courses they're in beautiful places a lot of them but they're quite predictable and they're on-road triathlons i mean yeah they're just sort of virtually all of them are the same and so i think i got away from that a little bit i mean i did manage to continue in some ways to do some of this stuff. Like I did the Cape Epic in 2018, a mountain bike race. I've done a few Xterras throughout my career, including the world champs a few times in Maui. So it was always kind of something that I tried to keep around, I guess. But in 2018, I think it was, we had reached out to the, to the crew. Um, we wanted to do this race. And then I think, or maybe it was 2019. I can't remember whatever the first year was, or maybe they had two years, 2018, 19, and then 20 and 21 were non-starters because of the pandemic. And then it started again this year. So I think, yeah, 2018 was when we first reached out and it was like on our radar then. And to me, it's just that sense of adventure, like being out in these kind of wild places and doing something that's a little bit more extreme and um, yeah, and just sort of testing yourself. It's the same thing I like to do in training. I like to do big epic days where I'm kind of on my back foot and I have to see if I have it really push myself. And even with somebody like Heather Jackson, who you mentioned, I think the draw for her in some ways, because we're quite close as friends is that she just loves being out there and seeing if she can do it, right? I mean, it's such a mental game when you get into ultra running. Not that I can really speak from experience because I haven't done any of them, but I've done long runs and, yeah, I can only imagine when you get into a 100-mile run that it's just your body is so physically broken that it really just becomes a mental game. And I think that's part of what we're all drawn to, right, is that being in that position where you have that really honest feedback with yourself where you, you basically ask yourself, can I do this? Am I going to do this? And you have to answer it honestly, you have to step up. And I mean, we're all kind of looking for that. And I think X-Try is kind of the next step. Once you've done some Ironmans and whatever, maybe you try something a little more extreme. And then there's probably plenty of other stuff out there that I don't even know about to take the step beyond that. But I think that's kind of where it came from for me is that that passion for, yeah, being in a situation where you really have to rise to the occasion and really test yourself in an honest way. Was there a connection to Chile versus like Norway or one of the other locations or was it related to the time of year? Yeah, I mean, it, I think, well, for one, I, I speak Spanish. I mean, in, I studied in high school and college and so that was a natural kind of pathway to be down there. I've been to Pucón for the 70.3 a few times, which is a little bit north of where we were. And it's just beautiful country. It's kind of one of those last wild, unspoiled ecosystems. And I think that was the main draw for my wife and I to have a little bit of vacation as well in an area that was incredibly beautiful and that offered a lot to do outside of just the event itself too. 
I didn't even really, I, I know about Norseman and actually apparently I earned a spot to their, I guess it's kind of like the X-Tri World Championships in a sense. And apparently I earned a spot to that event in August of this year, which I haven't decided if I'm going to do or not yet. I think there's a conflict with one other thing that I'm looking at doing, so I may not go. This just seemed like it fit kind of what I was looking for in terms of the race itself, the crew that runs it, and then also the area that, that it was in and what it offered to do after the event was over. Oh, and on top of that, on top of that, I also had one final piece, which was really kind of cool, is that a friend of mine, Mario Dalias, who's an Argentine professional triathlete, was my support person for the race. And he was able to drive over from Argentina with his family and support me, which was really cool, too. Yeah, I read that he actually was your uh, on-course running support for the last uh, miles of the marathon, which is something unique to X-Dry races, and uh, that obviously was uh, very much support, uh, very much um, appreciated by you <laughs> get yeah, towards the end it. of that event. It, it sounds like that event, I, I, I couldn't tell how many starters there were, but it sounds like it was quite challenging. There wasn't a large proportion of finishers. Do you think that they need to modify the race or it, does it have a, a future uh, as challenging as it is? Well, I mean, speaking to the organizers of the race, I mean, we got to know Ignacio and Samir pretty well, who are the main guys that run it. I mean, there's a whole crew, obviously. It takes quite a big team to pull this off. But those two guys, I think they're interested in keeping it relatively small for a variety of reasons. But part of what happened this year, too, was that they had people that had signed up in 2020 and 2021 that had deferred and, and, and. And then I think a lot of them also decided that after deferring that maybe they weren't ready this year, so they deferred it again. And so in the end, they didn't have as many people as they would have liked because they were. it was sort of some last-minute cancellations and whatever else. I think they were about... 100 less starters than they had, they had hoped for. So in the future, um, I think you'll see it close to maybe that 250 starters number, but they don't really want it to be a lot bigger. And I think they want to make sure that they have the bandwidth to give each and every athlete the attention that they need and to be able to manage it in a way and to run it in a way that they feel like is, yeah, just how they want to, to give that athlete the best experience possible. I mean, it's incredibly difficult and to be honest with you, I was pretty un, unprepared. I mean, I won the race, so it doesn't look like it on paper, but um, compared to my normal Ironman events that I trained for, I was not in the kind of shape that I needed to be. And if I knew how hard it was going to be, I, well, I mean, I was sick for three weeks in November, so that made it hard, but I would have done different and better training knowing what I know now. So anybody who goes down there, I would just say, be prepared for an extremely difficult day, probably harder than most any Ironman that you've ever done. But, yeah, but again, it, I don't think they want it to be too big. So, yeah, it seems like all of those events are competing to be out out <laughs> difficult the other. You look at Keltman and or Norseman and Swissman, and they just all look super super challenging. I'm curious if you think or if you see yourself doing more of these kinds of events. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, I I'm really drawn to the challenges, right? I mean, I think that's a big, big piece of all of this, whether it's a huge training day that we do or an event, I think that that's a huge motivator for me is to be really genuinely challenged. And uh, I remember doing the Cape Epic with Sebastian Keenley in 2018. And I think while we were in it, <clears throat> we didn't really enjoy it much. We were suffering pretty badly. We were sick and the race was grueling. And I remember afterwards, it was kind of that type two scenario in a sense where you're like, oh, that was fun after the fact. I really 
did appreciate it because it felt like they hadn't dumbed it down, that they had kind of kept it really authentic to it, to its core, which was that it's brutal and difficult. And a lot of people aren't going to finish and they're not trying to make it something that everybody can do. And I think that's probably what at our core, a lot of us as endurance athletes are drawn to. And, and when you find out that if you get into an event and you don't finish it, you know, the takeaway from that is not going to be necessarily pure disappointment. It's going to be excitement too. And like a fire in your belly to get out there and see if you can do it the next time. And that, I don't see anything wrong with that, I guess. So yeah, I would say to answer your question, I definitely see myself doing more of this in the future. And yeah, kind of picking those events that I think are going to be like a true challenge, because that's ultimately where we get the most reward to is where we feel like we actually work for something. Right. And when you look back, and now obviously this is the freshest because this is the most recent race you've done, but it might not be a fair question. But when you look back over a career of remarkable finishes that you've had and, and places that you've raced, uh, where does this rank? Does this rank uh, this not, not just your, your win, but just the experience of this event? Is it, does it rank up there with some of the bigger things you've done? Yeah, I mean, for sure, there's some recency bias. And I think you do lose touch with, you know, the sensations of races that happened almost 10 years ago, maybe like my first Ironman win in 2010 in Lake Placid. I mean, I was depleted. I mean, I remember crossing the line. And I had to get, I went to the med tent there. I mean, I was dead empty and yeah. And then of course, Ironman St. George that I won in 2012 after three attempts there, you know, they had the Ironman back in 2010, 11 and 12 uh, before we finally had it again this past year for the world champs. And I mean, I won it. I was second the first time, fourth, I think the second time I did it. And then the third year I won it and it was a crazy day. The weather was insane and the course was tough. And I, again, I was completely empty. 2014, when I got second in Kona, Jan's chasing me down on his first Kona attempt. I, I'm trying to mostly maintain at that point. I didn't think I was going to catch Sebastian in the last miles when he still had two or three minutes on me, which ended up being the case, but I was really working hard to stay in front of, of Jan and hold on to second place. And I remember how dead I was at that finish line. But yeah, I mean, this was also like that. I mean, I was completely empty. I mean, I got done and I, I, I barely remembered. I mean, I shook some hands, I took some photos, whatever. And then I went over to this grass median and I laid down for like 15 or 20 minutes. And I was like, Mario's taking my shoes off and, you know, he's trying to like talk to me, but I, I just was depleted. I had nothing left to even talk to people. And then I finally came around 15, 20 minutes of laying there. But yeah, I was, again, unprepared. And it took everything I had to get to that line. And and now looking back, again, that's like what I what I really like, where it's a true test and you have to really see if you can do it. So yeah, I would say it ranks pretty high in the top five of the events that I've ever done. And, and it will definitely be one of the most memorable because of how difficult it was. All right. So I'm just making notes here for, for an event to score highly with Ben, it has to nearly kill him. So uh, we'll just keep <laughs> right, that in yeah. mind. <laughs> I, sh I should actually probably, now that I think about it, I should probably shift my sort of requirements for, for a race being, yeah, something that I enjoy or that I yeah consider memorable because I do have two kids now that I'd like to see grow up. So <laughs> I, I do want to get your thoughts on something that of course is, is very uh, front of mind right now, which is the Kona knee split. But before that, uh, you mentioned just very in passing, almost this something you have coming up this year. Uh, and that was helping an athlete. And I happen to know what you're talking about because I read the interview that you gave to uh, slow twitch so do you, do you want to give us a little sense about what you were referring to 
Definitely. Yeah. So I am currently planning to do about probably five races this year where I'll be guiding for a visually impaired athlete on the world triathlon circuit. So uh, this athlete is headed to hopefully Paris 2024 for the Paralympics. And I would love to be part of that effort. So yeah, we're kind of in the beginning phases. I actually met with him last summer at the training center in Colorado Springs, and I was able to do some short training with him there. Unfortunately, I got COVID right around that time, and I wasn't able to go to the one race that I had planned to do with him last year. And yeah, now I'm kind of in this year where I have a little bit more flexibility and freedom in my schedule, and I'd like to prioritize it a bit more. So we're going to get out there and see see how we work together, see if this is going to be something that, that gels well for both of us and see if I can kind of add. I think I can, but I hopefully can only add to his performances. But it's going to be really exciting. I mean, I think, yeah, I don't know exactly what I'm getting into, but I know that um, I'm super motivated for it. And, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking about it, like what maybe part of what I'm excited about is the fact that I've always considered like that I was sort of that workhorse, right? When I played soccer, I loved being that midfielder that was running all around. And like, I was just, I was psyched to be part of a team and a team effort. And I think there's something about like, I don't know. I always thought I'd be a good domestique in road cycling. And I did race a, a fair bit of road cycling early in my triathlon career, actually. And I always was good in that role where I didn't necessarily want to be the superstar GC rider or something, but I could bury myself on the front if I knew that it was going to help out somebody on my team. And so I think that is in me and I think it'll really be a positive for, for us because that's basically what I have to do is swim whatever speed he's capable of and then smash myself on the bike and then <laughs> try to run as fast as he runs afterwards and not hold him back basically. So it should be a pretty, pretty cool experiment. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think also the prospect of going to Paris is pretty exciting. I mean, I never really... I was never super focused on going to the Olympics in my career. I think early on I tried a couple draft legal races and I was not a great swimmer then. So I got left behind chasing all day, finished in the thirties. And it was kind of like, well, unless I magically become way better at swimming overnight, um, I'm not going to ever really factor in the IT racing. And so it wasn't a dream of mine really when I switched to long course pretty quickly, but to kind of end up there now uh, at the end of my career, I think would be kind of a, an exciting and cool thing to, yeah. Get the charity on top a little bit and kind of do it opposite maybe of what most athletes do. Yeah, absolutely. I have a friend who guides and she talks about it as being the most rewarding, most most enjoyable part of triathlon that she partakes in. She loves it. These might be silly questions, but does the guide get meddled if there's a medal for the athlete? I don't even know an answer to that question. There's a lot that I don't know. So, I mean, uh, maybe don't ask me too many questions right now. It might be <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll stick to more familiar terrain. Although I, I just imagining this athlete being introduced to his potential guide and it's, it's Ben Hoffman, multiple Ironman winner. <laughs> uh, that that can only be received as, oh, well, I must be pretty good then if, if they're pairing well, me I mean, with Ben. One cool thing that I do know is that like on your kit that you wear, it just says guide. And like the other athlete, of course, is wearing the kit that shows their name on it their last right name. right and there's, there's a focus yeah and that's exactly it is like the the emphasis is on the athlete as it should be the, the visually impaired athlete in this case um and and i'm quite excited for that i don't this is not something that i need for my ego at all it's literally just something that i'm excited to do to to kind of give back into yeah i mean 
that literally guide in, in mul- multiple senses. I mean, hopefully yeah. there's a lot I can offer for this athlete in his career. Um, just little insights, things that I've gleaned over time. And yeah, maybe we can do something kind of cool. I think that's really amazing. I, I do want to finish though on, on this question. And that is related to the, the split of the Ironman world championships. You've obviously had a lot of history racing in Kona next year. The race will be in Nice. I know that there's a wide variety of sentiment. It seems even amongst the pros, although not too many of the pros have really come out and voiced that I can tell what their true feelings are. It seems like a lot of people are towing the line and being kind of, let's say, I don't know, neutral in a way. They don't want to make anybody angry or anything. I'm not going to press you to to say anything that you don't want to say, but I'm curious. I obviously am well aware of the age group reaction. Personally, I think this is a good thing for the future of Ironman. I'll just put that out there. I've said this many times on the podcast. I, uh, I, I wish I was doing Ironman this year because I love France. I, I think Nice is well-suited to me, uh, much better suited than the heat and humidity of Hawaii. And I speak French. So I, I would have I very much enjoyed going to Nice to race. But I'm curious as a professional, obviously, like you said, this is about your livelihood. What are your thoughts about the split? And what are your thoughts about changing the venue? Yeah, well, I mean, before we launch into that, I think we need to address all the reasons that you just listed about why you should probably be going to France. I mean, if I were you, whatever you have planned, saving lives, whatever nonsense you're doing, you probably need to reconsider that. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, there's a small, there's a the small, there's a small detail of qualifying, and uh, yeah, my yeah, family, yeah, my family, my family has has put the kibosh on Ironman for this year. So unfortunately, enough, the yeah. Nice announcement came out after they had uh, we had all decided on that. But that that's okay. I went to Nice for the uh, seventy point three Worlds uh, back in two thousand nineteen. I took my daughter, and we had a very lovely trip. But yes, tell me, tell me your thoughts on this. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm actually on the same page as you and it's taken me a while to get to this place. My first, the first thing I did, which is what I do with a lot of things in my life when I feel like there's a new piece of information or a new stimulus or whatever it is, is that I try not to react too much. I mean, I tend to have that in me, I think a little bit of a reactionary behavior that can come out sometimes. And so, yeah, my first knee-jerk reaction, I think, was like, oh, well, this is kind of disappointing because I dedicated a career to going to Kona and, you know, it's not going to be Kona anymore, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, since I didn't take that path in my mind and and commit to it, I've really kind of gone 180 degrees from that, actually. And and I believe that it is a good thing and I'm quite excited for it. And in some ways, I wish that this would have happened during my career that was more focused on racing, because I'm not sure that I'm going to try to go to Nice. Um, It definitely gets me excited. And I think there's a possibility that I would would rally and motivate for it. But yeah, I, I would say overall, I believe that it's a good thing. And the reason I think it's a good thing is because I feel like it makes the much more of an international event. I think that it brings the world into it in a new way. And and that's, I think Kona always felt like it was a little bit of a, an American event, even though it was a world championships. And there's a lot of reasons why Kona is really amazing and special. And I've, it's basically shaped my entire career. I just think that having it move to different places with new environments, new challenges and different terrain is going to be good for everyone. And it's going to be cool to see how, athletes adapt and who kind of comes out at different venues or in this case i guess we only know it's going to be nice in the next few years but 
another reason that I think it's a good thing um, is that, you know, it's, well, and also because, I mean, Nice has an incredible history, right? I mean, it's it's got more history than a lot of people know, and I think they're probably going to pull off an event that is really special. I mean, you can speak to this maybe from your experience at the World Championship, 70.3 World Champs that you went to there, but Kona, as amazing as it is, I think there's always been, a, at least in years past, the, the relatively recent past, there's been a lot of tension, right? I mean, the local community, it's not fully on board, and it's maybe not the best venue for the race, as iconic as it is. I think there's other courses out there that might be more interesting and better suited for hosting an Ironman triathlon. So I think it'll be, yeah, a really good venue there. And I think the community will support it well. The infrastructure will support it well. And uh, yeah, I think it's just going to make it, it's going to add a new element to it. And any company, any business, I think in order to stay relevant has to kind of evolve, right? Um, and there's different ways of evolving. This may prove to not be the best one, but I think that if they continue to do the same thing forever, but probably they won't grow the sport for sure. And they may not survive as a business overall. So yeah, I think it's a really good thing. I'm excited for it. And I would say the, the only thing I'm not fully convinced of yet is the splitting of the genders. I think that causes a variety of problems. I mean, I've heard people talk about people that are couples that race and how they're going to split them apart and make it where they have to kind of prioritize one or really expensive if they choose both or whatever it is. I think those are, there's, I don't know how, what that number is of the people. That's probably not a huge number, but that is an argument. And then also I think having, I just think that having, yeah, that having the split like this might be complicated for some of the sponsors and, and vendors in the sport having to prioritize or choose maybe one or the other and then being you know chastised for their choice whatever that is the difference in timing as well i mean having the men come first in this case just probably due to weather right and timing that way is also tough where i wonder if it's going to make kona feel like a little bit of an after afterthought even though it is still what it is iconic yeah, so there's a few things like that that I'm not convinced of with splitting the genders in completely different weeks apart. But yeah, overall, after that rant, that rambling that I just did, I think it's a really good good choice, and probably some other reasons that I haven't even thought of. Well, very, very, yeah, very sage and circumspect, and I have to say, I, I'm on board. I, I hear all of those concerns. I, I certainly am sensitive to them. And I think that over time, they will probably be dealt with. Ben, I, I can't thank you enough for taking your time uh, today to join me. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. You have had a remarkable career. And I'm really looking forward to, to follow the, the next couple of years as you embark on a slightly different kind of course in your trajectory. Thank you again for joining me on the podcast today. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I look forward to the next time we chat. Hopefully I'll be able to, yeah, follow through on some of the stuff we talked about. And then who knows what's coming. Like I said, it's a uh, future is unknown, but I'm excited for it. So next time we chat, I'm sure there'll be lots to discuss. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here.
Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDark Podcast Facebook page, TriDark Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDark Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.